John chapter 17. We're just going to be looking at the first five verses. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. We hand our pulpit note to Ernie, and as he comes up, let's just have a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you this morning for your word, and we pray your blessing upon your servant Ernie as he comes to bring your word to us. Let him speak with freedom, let the Spirit rule in his heart, bless him, give him strength, for Jesus' sake, amen. of Jesus and then last week we had the encounter of the Last Supper and today we're looking at the final prayers, Gethsemane and the passage we're going to be looking at is Mark chapter 14 verses 32 to 51. Um, all of the verses will appear on the screen including the ones that we come to uh, um, us from other Gospels. So, if you don't want to turn to it and just want to listen, that's fine. Final encounters with Jesus. Remember, we finished the Last Supper with the disciples drinking that final cup of wine, the, the Hallel cup, and singing the Hallel, Psalms 113 through 118, and then, according to John, Jesus prayed. And that's what we read the beginning of in uh, our reading just now. John chapter 17, the great high priestly prayer of Jesus, was just as they were going out to the garden. And if we uh, um, come to the uh, verse 32 of Mark 14, we're coming to the beginning of today's story. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now, if we just want to follow the track, um, this is where you would find the upper room that the Last Supper took place in. It's not far from Caiaphas's house, um, not far from... Herod's palace. It's in the center of the upper city. And uh, the disciples would have had to walk through there 
through the wall into the lower city and then out through the outer wall and across the Kidron Valley and up into the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives where, according to John, they entered an olive grove. The olive grove is known as the Garden of Gethsemane. It's still an olive grove today. In fact, there are many very ancient olive trees there, none quite old enough to have been around when Jesus was there. But I imagine the layout of the garden would have been very similar, just rows and rows of large, heavy olive trees. Jesus took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. So he's told the disciples to sit down while he goes to pray, and then he takes Peter, James, and John, and he's starting to feel distressed. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. So he's sending Peter, James, and John uh, to stay where they are while he goes on a little further. He's going to talk privately with his heavenly father. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Now, Rob read to us a wonderful prayer, the beginning of a much longer prayer, a prayer which fits beautifully in church. It's full of theology. It's absolutely mature, understands the great mission for which Jesus came into the world. He came here in order to suffer. And now, in private with his heavenly Father, suddenly the weight of all this is pressing on Jesus. He's overwhelmed to the point of death and he says, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic affectionate word for a father used by a child, a bit like daddy in English. And Jesus is addressing his heavenly daddy and saying, look, you can do anything. Take this cup from me. Please release me from the responsibility of carrying the weight of sin. Release me from all of the horrors of torture that I'm about to go through. Release me from this mission for which you sent me into the world. I'm overwhelmed by it. Father, Father, please release me. It's the kind of prayer that I would have prayed if I was facing even a fraction of the suffering that Jesus was about to suffer. It's the kind of prayer that all of us can identify with. It's, it's the human reaction to suffering and, and the prospect of suffering. We, we recoil from it. We, we want to be released from it. We don't want to have to go through with suffering. And yet... 
Jesus added something to that very, very human prayer. He said, Yet not what I will, but what you will. Some years ago, at the, the height of the charismatic renewal, it became very fashionable to criticize people who added the words, if it be your will, when they prayed for something. It was said that this demonstrated a lack of faith. You must understand that God wants the very best for you, and therefore, if you're ill, you don't ask if God to heal you if it's his will. Of course it's his will to heal you. He wants the best for you, and therefore, you tell God to heal you. You don't say, if it be your will. That's a cop-out. That's just allowing for the situation where your faith isn't big enough and God won't answer your prayer. But you know, that's a very mistaken view because none of us can understand suffering the way God understands suffering. He sees it from a totally different angle. Paul gets close to it when he tells us that, that actually suffering brings about perseverance, builds character, enables us to understand more of maturity and what it means to be the people God intended us to be. What God wills sometimes is painful for us and we shrink from it and we pray to have release from it as Jesus prayed to be released from the responsibility of bearing your sin and mine. But just think how terrible it would have been if God had answered the first part of Jesus' prayer and said, okay, you don't want to go through with it, but that's it. We'll, we'll finish there. We would still be waiting for a solution to the human problem, the sin, the separation from God, the isolation, the self-centeredness, the war, the, all of the terrible things that come from human sin would still be there, unforgiven. What Jesus said in the second part of his prayer was not very human, it was very godly. It was the ultimate act of submission, not a cop-out. It was an act of total submission to his heavenly Father. He did not want to go through with the pain, the suffering, the burden of your sin and mine, but he agreed to do it as an act of submission. Not my will, but what you will. What a wonderful, wonderful prayer that is. Now, Jesus returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Can you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, 
but the flesh is weak. You can understand what the disciples were going through. They've just had a very big meal, the Passover celebration meal. What do you feel like after Christmas dinner? You know? Their eyes were heavy. They'd had four cups of wine, the four cups that formed the liturgy of the Passover meal. And they've walked a little over a mile from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now it's dark, quiet, and they're on their own. It, surely it won't do any harm if I just, just let my eyes close a little bit. And the next minute Jesus is there. Couldn't you watch for just one hour? Their eyes were heavy. The flesh was weak. How embarrassing. The other thing that I think was happening here, I've noticed that often when great things are happening around me, I don't grasp their significance until very much later. And I look back and I think, wow, that was important, that was significant. But at the time, it just seemed to me like things were progressing as I might have expected them to progress. And I think that was how the disciples felt that night. They didn't understand what Jesus knew for certain, that this was a hinge point of history. This was going to be the most significant night in Jesus' life when he was to be taken, arrested, tried by a trumped-up court on trumped-up charges and then executed, tortured in the most terrible way. Once more, Jesus went away and he prayed the same thing. Again, he said, Father, Father, all things are possible to you. Please, take this responsibility away from me. But not not what I want, what you want. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they didn't know what to say to him. Must have been so, so difficult. Here was Jesus, obviously distressed, and they could only think about rest and sleeping off the big meal that they were still digesting. Luke adds something about the third time when Jesus went to pray. He says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Now, I would have expected an angel from heaven appearing to have changed Jesus' approach and helped him to be more like the man who prayed in the upper room with such a very clear understanding of what had to happen and uh, a commitment to going through with it and asking that God would glorify himself through this, uh, this thing. But it didn't seem to be that way for Jesus. The angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him and then being in anguish, He prayed more earnestly 
and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Drops of blood. Jesus was so anguished, he sweat blood. I'm told that is a, a rare condition known as hematohydrosis. I've been practicing saying that all week. <laughs> hematohydrosis. It happens when a person is under huge stress. Either physical exertion in, in the extreme or emotional stress, which causes uh, great anxiety and pressure. And what happens is that the blood capillaries in the skin rupture and leak blood into the sweat glands. And there are many, well not many, but a number of documented cases uh, which you can read about on the internet. And interestingly, almost all of the medical textbooks quote Luke 22 verse 44 and say this is the first recorded case of hematohydrosis when Jesus sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's interesting that Luke, who was a doctor, should have been the one, the only one, of the evangelists to record that particular little detail about Jesus' anguish. What's it tell us? It tells us how horrible was the anticipation that Jesus was going through at that time. How extreme was the anguish and pressure that he was feeling. Sometimes the anticipation of suffering is even more difficult to bear than the suffering itself. And that's what Jesus went through in the garden. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. How ironic, so, so ironic that it's now become a, a proverb to describe the ultimate in betrayal, to betray with a kiss. Judas could have arranged with the men saying, when we get to the garden, I will point out who Jesus is. You go and arrest him. Or if he was a little more daring, he could have said, I'll go up to Jesus and take hold of him, and then you come and arrest him. But no, Judas said, the one I kiss is the one. 
you take him and arrest him. And he even used the word rabbi, a term of respect, as he met Jesus and betrayed him with a kiss. Even more ironic, when you look back to the Last Supper and you remember how it was that Jesus identified Judas as the betrayer. You remember Simon Peter whispered to John just at the time Jesus had said, one of you is going to betray me. And Simon Peter said to John, ask him who it is. And so John leaned over to Jesus and said, who is it, Lord? And Jesus took a piece of bread, the matzo cracker, broken up, dipped it in the bitter herbs, and he said, the person to whom I give this piece of bread is the betrayer. That was an act of great respect. Great respect because in normal circumstances, the host of the feast would only give such uh, a piece of bread dipped in the herbs to one who was to be honoured, greatly respected by the host and those who were present. And in this particular case, he knew what was in Judas' heart, and he knew that Judas knew. And he gave the bread to Judas, showing him that honour and respect. And Judas repays it, ironically, by betraying Jesus with a kiss. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. John 18 gives us a little bit more detail on this. Then Simon Peter, it was Simon who standing near had the sword. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. It's even more precise. And he goes on to say the servant's name was Malchus. Now we know that John was well known at the high priest's house. When he and Peter went to the high priest's house following Jesus um, to find out uh, what was going to happen at the trial, John was allowed in, but Peter had to stay outside in the courtyard with the servants. John knew the high priest's household, and he knew Malchus. And if you had lived at that time and wanted to follow this up, you could have gone to the high priest's house and knocked on the servants' quarters and said, I want to talk to Malchus and asked him what happened in the garden. And he'd have told you. The detail given here is so precise, so fascinating, because the events are so dramatic. And Luke has got another detail to the story Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. We've just been reading how much anguish Jesus felt as he anticipated the pain and suffering of the next 24 hours. We know the turmoil that Jesus was experiencing and feeling. And yet, here in this moment, 
he sees a human being with a severed ear, a person in pain. And what's he do? He reaches out his hand and heals him. What an extraordinary act of grace. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. Indeed, Jesus had been teaching every day in the temple, and people have been crowding around. We've got so much of that teaching recorded for us in the Gospels. People loved him, and so the authorities were scared stiff to arrest him in broad daylight. They didn't want to go near the crowd in case they started a riot and people started reacting against the people who were coming to do the arresting. But it wasn't just the fear of the authorities that prevented them from arresting him during the week. It was to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus said, I was teaching in the temple all week. You could have come and arrested me. Why didn't you arrest me then? But the scriptures must be fulfilled. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, we've got lots and lots and lots of very precise scriptures that point forward to the suffering of the Messiah. All of those wonderful servant songs in the prophecy of Isaiah all the precise detail about the nature of Jesus' suffering, which almost blow your mind. Um, Josh McDowell did a calculation as to how many precise prophecies there were and the approximate statistics as to what um, the, uh, the likelihood of them happening purely as a matter of course. I can't remember the, the figures, but there were a whole lot of noughts in them, believe me. The, the likelihood of those prophecies coming about with the precision that they did, prophecies that were uttered 500, 600, 1,000 years before Christ sometimes, and all of that detail was fulfilled in his suffering, Good Friday. But... I don't think that's what Jesus was referring to. There's one particular verse, Isaiah 53, verse 12, which might have been there. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was counted as a criminal. And they came at night as they would come to arrest a criminal. But I don't think even that fulfills the scriptures in the way that Jesus was talking about here. Why could they not arrest him during the week? Because the Passover didn't begin until 6 p.m. on Thursday night. And the Passover was the day that the lamb was killed, the symbol of how the Hebrews were spared from death when the final plague in Egypt killed the firstborn of every Egyptian family. 
But the angel passed over the houses of the Hebrews. Why? Because they had fulfilled the Passover, the, the sacrifice of the lamb and painted its blood on the door uh, posts and lintels. This was Thursday night. This was the day the Passover lamb was killed. And as Paul describes it, Christ is our Passover. Christ is the one to whom the Passover lamb pointed forward to deliver us from the penalty of our sin, to deliver us from death and free us from slavery. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. It had to be Thursday night that Jesus was arrested and it had to be Friday before 6 p.m. that he died. Otherwise, it would not have fulfilled the Passover in the way that Jesus had predicted it would. Everyone at this point deserted him and fled. How alone Jesus must have felt, surrounded by an angry crowd, armed to the teeth, knowing what was ahead of him, and everybody runs away. His close friends, the people he has spent the last three years teaching, they all run away. And then we have an intriguing little verse. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus, and when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. There have been lots and lots and lots of speculation as to who that young man might have been. But I think the most likely explanation is that it was John Mark himself. See, it's quite likely that his parents owned the house that Jesus used for the Last Supper. And if Mark had gone to bed being a young man and not invited to the, the feast with the adults. He might have been woken as the disciples left the house and decided he would follow Jesus and rushed out in his night clothes, his linen um, night clothes. And when the soldier grabbed him, he let the night nightcloth stay behind and ran off naked. Quite a, a likely little story. As one commentator puts it, it's like the monogram of the artist in the bottom corner of a painting. Mark has told this story and he's just saying, I was actually there. I saw it all for myself. I heard Jesus pray these prayers. I was there. I was an eyewitness. So, what can we take home from Gethsemane? I think there are a number of things. The humanity of Jesus. When you're facing something terrible and you're so anxious about it that you're really, really churned up inside and you just want to pray, Lord, please, please, please release me from this. You know that Jesus knows exactly how you feel because he's been there. 
and he felt that way and he prayed that prayer. But don't forget how Jesus ended his prayer. Pray with all your heart, all your honesty. But remember, Jesus said, not my will, but your will. We can also take from Gethsemane the horror of Jesus' suffering. Not just the suffering of Good Friday on the cross, but the horrible anticipation of that which drove him to sweat blood. So powerful was he, the overwhelming sense of anxiety. When you realize how much Jesus suffered in order to release you from sin, how can you ignore it? I'd just like to tell you a little story about someone who was a hero of mine in my youth. A man called Wilfred Grenfell. Grenfell of Labrador is the name by which he's better known. When Wilfred Grenfell was in the sixth form at Marlborough College, he and his friends were walking past a Catholic church and they saw a notice outside the Catholic church which said confessions will be heard between 11 and 12 and it was half past 11. And they cooked up a little scheme between themselves and um, Wilfred went inside the church was empty. No one was there to have their confession heard. But he saw the booth and he went in behind the curtain and he confessed the most outrageous and terrible things. And he, he became more and more exuberant in the, the, the sinful life that he poured out to this priest all the time trying to hold in the laughter that was uh, inside him. The priest I think, was an extremely wise man. He said to him, young man, I have a penance that I want you to fulfill. I want you to go down to the front of the church and kneel at the altar. I want you to look up at the painting of Jesus on the cross which hangs behind the altar. And I want you to look at that picture for five minutes and then say out loud, you did all this for me, and I don't give a damn. And Wilfred was still bubbling with the mirth of his deception, came out from the, the booth and went down to the front of the church. He knelt at the altar rail and looked up at the painting of Jesus suffering on the cross. He never got to the place of saying, you did all this for me and I don't give a damn because he saw the horror of Jesus' suffering and realized that he did really care. And when he came out of the church, his friends couldn't understand why he was weeping. And he couldn't find the words to explain. But later he gave his whole life over to telling others about Jesus and went to Labrador to a, 
most inhospitable climate you can imagine and planted churches among uh, the indigenous people. The horror of Jesus' suffering is something that we can take away with us because that is the cost of our salvation. And we can take away the power of Jesus' prayers. Not demanding prayers, totally honest prayers. Jesus didn't start by saying, not my will but yours be done. He started by asking God to release him because that's what he wanted. He didn't demand it, but he asked for it. And then he submitted fully to the will of his heavenly Father, conforming his own will to the will of God. You know, that is often the greatest power of prayer. Not to change God's mind, to make God or persuade God to do things that we want him to do for us. The power of prayer is enabling God to make our will conform to his. And that is something that we can all take from Gethsemane. In the prayer that we read before the sermon started, the prayer in John 17, John puts these words into the mouth of Jesus. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And Jesus made it possible for us to know God and know him too. The message of Gethsemane (coughs) is filled with hard things. But the message is also a message of hope and salvation. Eternal life to know the only true God and to know Jesus whom God has sent.